So we're talking about rest and repentance tonight. And this passage in Isaiah chapter 30 has long been a favorite of mine. It was about 10 years ago. There was a student, Belmont student, that I knew that was involved in RUF. And she started getting involved in a cultic group. I think this group has kind of died down now. They were called the Nashville Church. If they're still around, you want to avoid them. And I'll tell you why later if you want. Um, But a cultic group. Um, had started to work with her, and they're a very controlling kind of group. So, um, you know, this girl had been assigned a discipler. Um, as it turned out, one of the kind of the head women's discipler for the quote-unquote church was meeting with this student, and um, I found out that they were meeting together, and I asked if I could come join one of their meetings and um, chat with them and um, about this. And so they used to always meet over at Centennial Park, so went over there to Centennial Park, and uh, my student and this woman, we got into this discussion. It was mostly me and the woman discipler lady getting into a discussion. And um, one of the things that this lady was contending, it was a real kind of bedrock um, idea of their church, was that first you have to repent. And by that, they meant you had to quit sinning. Then you had to get baptized. And then you would get the Holy Spirit in a very specific order in that way. And, uh, and yet to hear them talk about, you know, repentance, it was pretty quickly obvious that they didn't mean by it what the Bible means by it, and certainly not what Isaiah 30 means by it. We got a problem? Oh, okay. Um, so we were talking, and, and um, you know, I, I said, well, now Peter says in Acts chapter 2, that's what the verse that they were jumping on, Acts chapter 2, that, you know, you need to repent and be baptized, Right? Um, and then you'll be saved. Okay, great. I get that. Do you think that Peter, being a Jew, um, you think it would be relevant if we looked at what the Old Testament says about repentance? Because I don't think, I don't think the Bible means by that what you mean by that. Why don't we look at this passage in Isaiah 30? Would that be okay? Because I would think as a Jew that the Old Testament background to this idea of repentance might be relevant to what you're talking about. And she said, okay. So we looked at Isaiah 30, 15, which is one of our uh, verses that we're going to look at tonight, where it says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. Now, the way Hebrew poetry works, it doesn't rhyme, but it uses kinds of parallelism structures. And so what Isaiah is saying is that repentance and rest are the same thing. And so I said to her, I said, it seems to me when I hear you talking that repentance is this thing that you have to do, and if you do it just right and you do it well enough, and then you do this other thing, baptism, then maybe God will relent and give you his spirit. But I don't understand how that understanding of repentance could be equated with resting. And she said, being a Christian is absolutely not about resting. It's not about resting at all. I said, really? Then I guess you have a problem with how Jesus preaches the gospel when he says, whoever is weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. And at this point, the student looked at the discipler lady and said, wait a second. So you don't think that being a Christian is about resting? And she says, absolutely not. I said, oh, okay, I'm out of here. Now, the story didn't end up as well as I would like because the girl ended up eventually not coming back to REF either. I'm not even sure where she's at spiritually now. But I will tell you that what that lady was saying is wrong. 
But even though she's a cultist kind of lady, and it's easy to say, well, it was a cult, so of course they're wrong. I would contend that the reason that that church was so effective in drawing unsuspecting people, especially people raised in churches, into their group is because I think most evangelical Christians think of repentance more as a work than as about resting. I think that for the, it's fascinating that you know one of the big issues at the time of the Protestant Reformation was on the idea of penance, as the Roman Catholic Church taught, or repentance, and were they the same thing? And even though the Protestant Reformation came down strongly on the side of saying penance is not what we have to do before God, in fact, most evangelical Christians are deeply involved in doing penance and trying to earn God's smile by being sad and sorry for their sin all the time. Now, I think Isaiah actually has something very different to say. But what's interesting is the context in which this passage comes to us. This is in the middle of a whole section of woes. Woe are you, woe are you, woe are you, you know, chapter after chapter after chapter. And where we have gotten to here in chapter 30, um, because as Gregory said, we're zooming through this book, okay? But here in chapter 30, the situation is Israel, or really um, Judah, God's people, the southern two tribes, They are in danger from Assyria, who is the superpower of the day that's on the move. And rather than trusting God, as God has told them to do through Isaiah the prophet, what they've done is they've made an alliance. Judah has made this military alliance with Egypt, who's down here, hoping that Egypt will be able to protect them from Assyria. And so God comes and pronounces woe upon them. But in the middle of pronouncing this woe, we learn some very important things about repentance, about rest, and about the thing that makes it so difficult to do either one of those, which is fear. This is a passage about fear and about what happens when you trust in things that are not worthy of trusting in. When you trust in things to save you, that can't possibly do it. When you do that, the Bible says your life is filled with irrational fear. And so we're going to look at this passage and dig into fear and repentance and rest and see how God, the divine warrior, comes not just to battle against his enemies, but against our fear and our unbelief. Let's pray together and then we'll read this passage. Lord, we do pray that you would help us even now as we dive into this portion of your holy word. We pray that you would open our eyes and that you would draw us to yourself, that we would be able to lay down our arms and rest in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Isaiah chapter 30. Let's read this with me, if you will, or follow along is what I mean to say. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials in Zoan and their envoys envoys have arrived in Hanes, everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them who bring neither help nor advantage 
but only shame and disgrace. An oracle concerning the animals of the Negev. Through a land of hardship and distress, of lions and lionesses, of adders and darting snakes, the envoys carry their riches on donkeys' backs, their treasure on the humps of camels to that unprofitable nation, to Egypt, whose help is utterly useless. Therefore, I call her Rahab the do-nothing. Rahab is a, a name for Egypt often in the Old Testament. Go now, write it on a tablet for them. Inscribe it on a scroll that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. These are a rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path. And stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression, and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teacher will be hidden no more. With your own eyes you will see him. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. Then you will defile your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, Away with you. He will also send you rain for the seed you sow in the ground and the food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will graze in broad meadows. The oxen and donkeys that work the soil will eat fodder and mash spread out with fork and shovel. In the day of great slaughter, when the towers fall, streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill. The moon will shine like the sun and the sunlight will be seven times brighter like the light of seven full days, when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds he has inflicted. That's enough for right now.
lot of, lot of strong stuff mixed in with some beautiful promises, as it often is in this book of Isaiah. And I, I think, um, you know, the dominant theme here is they've made this alliance with Egypt. But as you dig into it, you find that what's really driving them is fear. And it's an important question for us to consider tonight. What do we do with our fear? It's actually true that you will always fear something. The way the Bible puts it, the the, the beginning of, of wisdom is to fear God. In the end of Ecclesiastes, it says, Now what is the whole duty of man? Fear God and keep his commandments. So the Bible doesn't say that you should just get rid of fear. Rather, the Bible says the fear of God should be the fear that puts all other fears in their place. It's the words of Derek Kidner, and I've always loved that quote. The fear of God is the fear that should put all other fears in their place. Now, the fear of God in the Bible doesn't mean being afraid of him, like he's about to swat you if you step out of line. As a matter of fact, there's a place in the Psalms where it says, because there is forgiveness of sins with you, therefore I fear you, O Lord. So what the Bible means by fear does not mean being afraid of him, or that wouldn't make any sense at all. Because he's the one who forgives sins, therefore we reverence him and we treat him with awe and respect. I wonder what that is. Somebody's cell phone? Okay, I don't know. Not mine. <laughs> I'll try. Hopefully it's not annoying you guys. It's annoying me a little bit, but carry on. All right, so fear is a, is a, huge, it's a huge deal. I was thinking about, uh, one of my favorite lines is a song by Sandra McCracken where she talks about um, the fears of a child in the heart of a woman. And I just think the more I live and the more I talk with people, whether they're students or whether they're my friends, everybody, everybody has fears. And it drives us in so many ways. And we don't really, I think we don't like our fear. I don't think we know what to do with it. And so we tend to suppress it and not deal with it. But I think that one of the things that this passage is going to help us see is that your fear is really an important diagnostic tool to help you understand what you're really trusting in. Fear, your fear is very important because it's one of the best ways for you to figure out what you're really trusting in. Well, let, let's, let's look at how fear works itself out as we kind of go through this passage. It starts out, of course, um, with this woe. And what is going on? Israel is afraid. And it's a legitimate concern at one level. Even though God has promised, I mean, Assyria is a threat. They're wretched people. They were known in the ancient world for their practice of deporting you from your homeland and sending you off somewhere. And in these days, like where you lived was very core to your identity. But not only did they just sort of take you away from your place and send you off into exile, the way they did it was particularly cruel. They would take things that were like giant fish hooks and impale people's mouths on these and have a whole chain, kind of like sort of this gruesome version of like when I was in college, I used to, there was this little elementary school really close to us and you'd always see like the little kindergartners all holding on to the little rope, right? It was, it was so adorable, these little kids and they're all holding their little rope being led. But it's like that. It's like the whole people are being led with these giant fish hooks on this chain, right? 
They were hated and they were feared. And God doesn't seem real and he doesn't seem close to them. And so the, the, the thing that they do is they turn to themselves and their own resources. But what often happens is it doesn't really look like that's what they're doing. It looks like they're turning to Egypt. But what they really are doing is turning to their ability to find somebody to take care of them and their ability to get this person to take care of them. Even though, you know, this is always the way it is. A lot of times we don't really see how we're really trusting ourselves. We think we're trusting something else that's over here. Like maybe, you know, you say, well, you know, I'm a people pleaser and, you know, I'm just always like a people pleaser. Well, what you're really trusting in is not what other people think of you as much as what you can make them think about you. Often we, 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 we think that our trust is placed over here, but ultimately it's just a projection of how we're trusting ourselves. So Israel is, is making this alliance. They're trying to make this alliance, and it seems that they've jumped right into it because it says basically that the envoys are already there. These places, Zoan and Haines, they're in Egypt. So the envoys are always already there. It seems that they went through the Negev to get there. The Negev is a very inhospitable place. It's not the normal route that you would take, but it seems that perhaps the envoys went sort of a roundabout way to do this in secret. So they've went, they've already made the deal with Egypt. They've already sent the money to pay them to take care of them. But what was really going on is Israel is looking to herself rather than her God. They're masking it. They're masking it by sort of making a military alliance. It seems like their problem is they're trusting in Egypt, but really their problem is they're trusting in themselves and their ability to get Egypt on their side. That's what's going on. They did it quickly, and this is often the way fear works. Fear tends to drive us into doing things quickly, rashly, without thinking, and without inquiring of the Lord. And that's what's emphasized here, how quickly they do this. You've already went there. Your envoys are already there, right? And um, what's, what's interesting is the, the, when, when fear comes and begins to dominate us, uh, see if this is true of you as well, what's true of, of Israel here, they turn to solutions that make no sense. Fear often makes us just kind of lose our mind. Think about this. If you know, if, if you've heard much about the story of God's people as it's recorded in the Old Testament, how had God's people related to Egypt in the past before this? Were they on good terms? No. Egypt, Egypt was the slave master nation that had kept Israel for hundreds of years in bondage. And God had done the most remarkable deliverance. It's called the Exodus, right? You've seen the Charlton Heston movie, right? Moses, all that stuff. It's what we did last semester, right? Life of Moses. Wasn't it last semester? No, last spring. I don't remember when it was now. Yeah, well, yeah, I know I recently preached on the life of Moses. So, you you know, some of you should at least know some about this story. So here's what's crazy. Their fear has made them do something that's absolutely insane. How crazy is it to go back and put yourself in bondage again to the, to the same master that the Lord had delivered them from? The Lord had delivered them. He had showed himself as their great warrior. 
who had come and done battle. What the plagues were all about was battling the gods of Egypt and showing how impotent they were, that none of them could stand, right? Finally, the final plague was against Pharaoh himself, who was considered a god in Egypt, killing the firstborn. All these things, God showing himself as the divine warrior. And now have they've just forgotten everything. Assyria, this killer nation that's coming towards them, has made them turn to the killers that they know. I mean, I know that, that Assyria is a serious threat, but to go back to Egypt? To go back to Egypt after all that God had done to deliver them from Egypt. But isn't that the way we do it? Think about how many of the things that you struggle with are things the Lord has, has, has brought you deliverance. And then how often do we just run back to those things for no good reason? I guess what I want us to see is that sin is always insane. It doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make sense to go back to Egypt for God's people to run to Egypt when God had already delivered them through the exodus. But when fear has taken over your life, that's what happens. Not only that, they're closing their ears to anybody that would speak truth to them. They refuse to hear the truth, and especially the bad news. And this always happens. See, the more we put our trust in anything besides God, the more desperate we will be to try to protect that fragile trust. One of the things that the Bible talks a lot about is how ridiculous it is to put your trust in something else besides God. We'll get to this when we get to Isaiah 44. Um, Isaiah has this amazing, sarcastic diatribe against people who put their trust in idols carved out of a block of wood and how ridiculous it is. But, you know, we do the same thing. How ridiculous is it to basically base your happiness and your sense of whether life is going well on whether somebody likes you or calls you or invites you to do something with them? Really? Like, you're going to base your whole life upon whether this person who's, you know, probably not very thoughtful or considerate or... You know, probably clueless about what role they have in your life. You're going to base your whole life upon whether or not they call you. There's there's something that's so out of your control, and of course we don't like that. So we try to do lots of things to manipulate the situation so we will be able to control it. But there's so many of these things. The more we put our trust in pseudo saviors, false saviors, the more anxious we become. And that's where you get down to here in, in verse 15 and 16 and 17, right? What is this imagery here where it says, um, verse 16, you said, no, we will flee on horses. Well, that's the idea of trusting in a military alliance. Egypt was famous for their chariots. It's what made them powerful. So to go to Egypt means you're going you're gonna to join in with the guys who have these powerful chariots. So rather than deal with, you know, face the threat... With God's help, they're going to flee on horses. And what does God say? Okay, you will flee. If you want to flee on horses, you will flee. You said we'll ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. And listen to this, verse 17. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away. What is that an image of? It's an image of if you have an army of a thousand men and one soldier 
stands up to oppose you, you'll all run away. Now, that's a plainly ridiculous image, right? When, when would a thousand-man army flee at the sight of one soldier? Do you see what Isaiah is trying to say here? When you put your hope in something besides God, it will feel, fill your life with irrational fear. Because you know that what you're trusting in can't really sustain you and support you. So, in other words, um, if, if, you're hoping, if you're hoping for a good grade, right, in something, and, and it's just become like, I've got to get an A in this class. You can't enjoy anything <laughs> that you're learning. You're always anxious. You're um, really like on edge. If anybody does anything to sort of threaten like your performance in this class, it's just like you just can't lighten up. When, when, when something gets elevated to being more important than it should be, it gets surrounded by all these fears and all of these desperate attempts to protect this fragile thing. Or, or it would be like, you know, if, um, if well, I'll, I'll give you an example from my life. Because I, I like to trust in my ability to know things and to have the answers. So how do you think I respond when I'm brought face-to-face with somebody who knows more than I do? I can't, you know, I can't relax. I can't learn. I'm threatened. And I either have to sort of like, you know, find a way to move, move somewhere else, get out of that situation, or um, maybe through a preemptive strike, you know, spout off something that may get this person to think, oh man, he's really smart. I better not, I better not ask him any hard questions. Or, I, it, it, it gets really silly and ridiculous. And, you know, I don't know what it is for you, but I guarantee you that if you find that there are things in your life that you feel like, this just really, I just get anxious about this. And it really shouldn't be that big a deal. I guarantee you, somewhere lurking underneath that is some misplaced trust and worship. Tim Keller said one time, and I I think he's exactly right, that if you pull up your fears by the roots, you'll find your idols clinging to them. That beneath your fears are your idols, are misplaced trust. And that's exactly what we see here. Israel is trusting in Egypt rather than her God. And her life is being filled with irrational fear. Right? And, you know, I I think another thing you can say this irrational fear. Fear distorts our sense of reality. It does. And and, um, it's sort of this vicious cycle. The more you you refuse to go to God... With your fear, the more your fears multiply. So what are we to do? Well, God gives us some very clear direction here. But fortunately, he gives us more than clear direction. But let's look at what he tells us to do first. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Now, as I said, the way Hebrew poetry works in verse 15, repentance and rest are equated. 
But I, you know, I think a lot of, for a lot of people that have grown up in Christian churches, they're familiar with this sort of scenario where you go to church, the preacher preaches some very convicting sermon, and then there's an altar call kind of time where you come forward, and what do you do? You basically say, Lord, man, I'm really sorry. I didn't live like I should have this week. You caught me. I know, man, I feel really bad. Um, Jesus, you know, if, if you forgive me this time, I promise I won't do this again. And you do it with great tears and great emotion. And you just, in some churches, this becomes like a weekly ritual. Now, what I would say to you is that has nothing to do with repentance. That is much more like the Roman Catholic, medieval Catholic idea of penance than it is this idea of rest. What's wrong with that sort of way of transacting with God? Well, number one, there's no Jesus in it. There's no gospel in it. There's a sense that I'm basically going to God. So many Christians, I think, feel that what it means to be a Christian and what it means to sort of ask for forgiveness of sins is to go to God and say, please forgive me because I feel bad and I promise to do better. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, (coughs) God knows that you're lying. And he's not going to forgive you based on a lie. He's not going to forgive you based on you feeling bad. This is why sometimes we sing that hymn, Rock of Ages, that says, Could my zeal no respite know? That means even if you could stay fired up for Jesus all the time, could my tears forever flow? Even if you really could weep over your sin the way you should, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. See, the difference between penance and repentance Penance is you trying to make a bargain with God, saying, forgive me because I feel bad. Forgive me because I'm going to show you how sad and sorry I am. I'm not saying that you shouldn't weep over your sin, but you have to understand that your tears do not help God one bit to forgive you for your sin. The only thing, the only basis upon which you can be forgiven for your sin is because Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners, right? And actually, it's only when you understand that that you can really begin to weep over your sin because you see what it costs your Savior who loves you. And so many people are just caught in this vicious cycle of feeling like I need to impress God either with my duties, the things that I do, or, and this is more typical, I need to impress God with feeling bad because I'm not doing all the things I know I should do hoping that if I feel bad enough, God won't have the heart to punish me. See how twisted that is? It's a false gospel. It's the idea that what Jesus, what God needs for me to be forgiven is he needs me to be really, 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 really sorry. And I have to convince him that I really, 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 really mean it. But then what do you do after the fifth time, sixth time, seventh, tenth? See, I think a lot of Christians get caught in this This vortex, it's like, okay, I understand how Jesus could forgive me when I didn't know any better. But now that I've been a Christian for a long time and I keep sinning in the same ways and I keep telling him I'm sorry, but then I don't act like it, how in the world, how in the world is he not just sick to death of me? And the answer is in what else is revealed in this passage. 
I love verse 18. This is so beautiful. In spite of the fact that they need to repent and to rest. See, uh, let, me do, let me just say, in spite of this, they're not resting. See, the thing about penance is, it's working. It's something you're doing. You're trying to wump up this feeling to impress God that you really are religious or spiritual. But what, it, what would it look like for you to rest what, how, how is repentance equated with resting? It's, it, it works like this. To repent means not just to say, I turn from my sin and now I turn to right living. To repent is to say, I turn from my false trust and I collapse upon Jesus. I think for so many people, they've been taught that repentance is turning from your sin and then doing the right thing. But it's not. It's first and foremost turning from false trust and collapsing upon Jesus. And, and God gives us every, every reason to do that in the rest of this passage. Because the only thing that can enable us to really rest is if we see that God is a safe place. See, if you think that God is somebody who's just always just kind of nitpicking and examining every little thing you do, just waiting for you to sort of step out of line, if you think that, and I know that you wouldn't agree with that, like if I had you write down on a test, what do you think about God and what do you think he thinks about you? I know none of you would write that, that he's this you know, cosmic killjoy who just seems to delight in exposing me as a sinner. But a lot of us feel that way if we're honest. A lot of us, our, our, our heart tells us that that's what God's like. And we don't, we don't, we don't understand, you know, that, that he's a safe place. But that's what this, is, this goes to next. When it says in verse 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. Isn't that amazing? He says, you need to repent and you need to rest. And then he says, but you don't want to have anything to do with that because you're so committed to your own plans. You're so committed to your own ability to take care of yourself. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He is not thwarted by our unbelief. Isn't that such good news? Because we don't rest. We don't know how to rest. Why don't we know how to rest? Because we don't know and we don't really believe in our heart of hearts that the thing that the Lord wants to do more than anything, what he longs for is to be gracious to you. He longs to be gracious to you. He doesn't long for an opportunity to blast you. He's not up there wringing his hand saying, gosh, why did I forgive her? She really hasn't done a very good job being a Christian, and I wish I could take it all back. And you know, after about the tenth time that she does this, well, then I'm going to have every good reason and, and the right to take it back. No, God does not long to take back the gospel. He's most glorified in the gospel, and he longs to be gracious to you and have it penetrate into the deepest part of your heart and your soul. And so he reveals himself, not just what we need to do. That's so important. 
The Bible never just tells us what to do. It always connects us to who God is and what he's done. And that's where this passage goes, right? The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. The Lord's character invites us. He's patient. He's eager. The imagery is like him standing on his tiptoes. Because he just can't wait to show us compassion. He can't wait to be gracious. And yet... In Isaiah's day, he does wait. There is a waiting that goes on. And it's it's this waiting that's always been so difficult for God's people to understand. Um, The New Testament deals with this at one place where it says, Why is the Lord so long in keeping his promises? Do you remember Peter talks about this? And he says, Basically, there's a paraphrase, but this is what he says. That basically, he's waiting to give everybody a chance to repent. He's not wishing that any should perish. And the waiting of God causes us quite a lot of consternation and difficulty. But the waiting is also an expression of his compassion and his mercy and his kindness. He promises all kinds of things, some of which are going to come true very soon for God's people here, some of which are going to take until Jesus comes, and some of which are going to take until he comes again. And they're all mixed together in this passage, but all of these things reveal that the Lord is gracious and longs to show compassion to his people, even though they don't deserve it at all. Let me show you a couple of these things, how how he gets it at it here. It talks about um, how he is the teacher and the healer. I love that in verse 26, but it's a paradoxical verse, isn't it? This is where the book of Revelation gets this idea about God shining in such a way in this heavenly city that's going to come that the moon and the sun are like, can't even compare. Like they're not even there. They're not even needed, right? But this, this imagery When the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds he inflicted. Now, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Here's here's what you need to understand. The imagery of the warrior God. And that's predominantly the image that traces through these next couple chapters in Isaiah. Don't worry, I'm not going to show you all that. I put some of it on the outline, but we don't have time to look at that tonight. But the imagery, the way it works is this. God is the divine warrior. And as he reveals himself as the divine warrior, it's the only thing that can allow his people to feel that they don't have to take matters into their own hands. It's only when you see that what you're trying to get from your idols, from your false trusts, you already have in God. That's the only way that you can let go of these false worships. It's not enough even for God to say, you need to repent, you need to rest, unless you understand that the thing that my fear is being so driven by, I don't need to be afraid. In other words, are, are, you, are you afraid that you 
that you have no future unless you make a future for yourself now during these years. This is your shot. If you don't figure out what you're supposed to major in, if you don't figure out who you're supposed to marry, if you don't figure out what you're supposed to do, should you go to grad school, should you do this, should you, if you don't figure that out, your life is going to be ruined. Does that fear keep you up at night? Well, it's not enough for me to just say, stop it. <laughs> you know, you've seen that Bob Newhart thing, you know, on YouTube where he's, you know, Bob Newhart used to have this psychology, you know, show where he was like a psychologist guy and, you know, he's got this great sort of counseling method. You know, the guy comes in and tells him his problems. He goes, stop it. Just stop it. You know, stop thinking like that. No, God doesn't do that. God says, I know the plans I have for you. You're a co-heir with Christ. In other words, God doesn't say, don't, 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 the future doesn't matter. He says, no, I've secured your future. You don't have to. You don't have to secure your future. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't make good decisions the best you can, but it does mean you should not believe that your decisions are so important that if you make the wrong one, God will be unable to take care of you. That's when you've went from trying to make good decisions to feeling like I need to be God himself. Right? And of course you won't be able to make good decisions in that context because you'll be full of fear. There's so much weight on your decisions. What happens if you're wrong? Right? The only thing that will help you is to say, you know what? God has made me to be a responsible choice maker, but he's also ruling his world. And therefore, I can make the best decisions I can, but I know that even if I make a bad decision, it does not thwart God's ability to be the sovereign Lord of the universe. Right? The only way you're going to be able to relax is if you know who he is and that what you're trying to get from your own efforts a reliable future, a guaranteed future because you've made the perfect decision. The only way to get that, the only way to let go of that trap and that bondage is to see that you can rest in the Lord and his goodness. Now, what's fascinating about this passage is the Lord, as he goes on through this, he talks about how, uh, and this isn't, we don't have time to see this, but it's later in this chapter, he talks about how, look, I'm going to deal with the Assyrians I'm going to deal with the Assyrians. You don't need Egypt. This is Rahab the do-nothing. They're useless. All these things that you think can save you are not helping. They're making it worse. But what does the Lord do? Do you know what the Lord does to the Assyrians? I actually put this verse on, on the back of your paper. It's in 2 Kings 19.35 on the scripture page. The Assyrian army marched into Judah basically took the whole country except for Jerusalem. They're camped around Jerusalem. And then you read in 2 Kings 19, verse 35, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. Whoa, that's a pretty remarkable deliverance. You know, some, some churches talk about uh, being slain in the Spirit, which this is where that comes from. Except when these people are slain in the Spirit, they don't get up. 
they're dead. 185,000 of them in one night, and the Assyrian threat is done. Do you see how easy that was for God? Right? But God's people, see, it's so easy for God to deliver them from Assyria. It really is. He sends his, he sends his angel, and 185,000 Assyrians are dead. But what's so difficult is for him to get his people to trust in him. He can't do that by sending an angel. The only way he can do that is by sending his son. Because the only way you can truly be set free from your fear is to see the commitment of God manifest in Jesus hanging on a cross when he wanted to get off but he didn't. The only thing that can secure your courage is the courage of Jesus. So when you're struggling and you're thinking, oh, God can't take care of me, I better take care of myself. You have to remember, Jesus hung on a cross and refused to take care of himself. Therefore, you don't have to worry about yourself. It's a great place. I'll, I'll close with this. It's a great place in, um, it's in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about uh, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. Remember this? Do you remember? There's this, this little phrase where he says, the pagans run after all these things. I don't know what you think it means to live like a pagan, <laughs> but it, what Jesus says it means is to basically try and take care of yourself to run after where you're going to live. What are you going to wear? What are you going to eat? And do you remember what he says next? He says, but your heavenly father knows you need these things. The only way that you're going to be set free is to know your heavenly father knows and he cares. And Jesus hung on a cross to prove to you that he would rather die than live without you. Can't you use that to fight against your fears? Jesus came ultimately as the divine warrior to battle against sin and death, but also against your unbelief. God had to come in the person of his son to do that. And the way he battles against your unbelief is by dying in your place and saying, how how can you think that I don't care? How can you think that I won't also give you all things when I've given you my very life? And you have to take that and you have to use that and pray, Lord, make that real and powerful to my heart. When I'm doubting that you can take care of me, when I'm feeling that my fears are telling me that I have to take care of myself, I need to look at the cross and I need to see Jesus refused to take care of himself. And that proves, that proves that God will never leave me or forsake me. You understand? You have to use the gospel truth to battle your fears because Jesus came as the divine warrior to put to death our fear so that we could rest and collapse upon him. And it's out of that that you live. This is why Christians begin the week with rest. Did you ever think about that? The Christian life begins with rest. Rest. 
Hebrews 4 says that what it means to enter into the promised rest is to trust in Jesus for salvation. Sunday, the first day of the week, is the day of rest. It's the day the Lord was raised to show us that before you do anything, you rest. But the only way you can do that is because Jesus did everything. Let's pray to God.